Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud Base Mayhem. We are less than five weeks out from the race. Getting pretty excited. This is, it looks like it's actually going to happen. There's, they've got this special permit for us to get into Austria and some of the cross-border stuff still a little bit dicey, but things are opening up, loosening up, and we, my team and I are all heading over in just a couple weeks. So that is pretty exciting. It's all down to the wire here. Just got done with four days of wicked acro training over the water with Dylan Benedetti and his team out there in California. I'd heard great things about what he was doing. So Ben Abruzzo and I, one of my supporters, went out there to train with him. And I think his whole group, other than us, had never, it was the first time SAV for everybody. So we kind of got to see how he, how he takes them through the course. And it was really terrific. Uh, high marks for that whole team. And very impressed with how they run things and actually I was so impressed that got Dylan on the show afterwards he spent a bunch of years out in Nepal he's a super talented acro pilot pilot and former uh, competition pilot and so you'll hear him on an upcoming show here but thanks to that whole crew and highly recommended it's pretty hard for us to get good over the water SIV instruction here in North America and they do a really good job little bit of housekeeping. We've just received a big, huge box of new recaps hats from Annika, and they are beautiful. They're really up in their game there. They've got these seven panel trucker hats and cotton front hats that are really beautiful. So check them out, cloudbasedmayhem.com. Go to our store there and get all set up for the summer. We've also got a whole new batch of Patagonia pocket t-shirts. These are all sustainably sourced and made and really nice fit. So those are those are nice as well and, and all new. So check it out on the store and get set up and send me your orders here shortly because I'm going to be gone in Europe for a month and I'm kind of a one-man show when it comes to that stuff. This show, man, I just went through and listened to it again to give Miles the, the edit notes with Mitch MacLear is just unbelievable. Uh, Bill Belcourt called me up when I was out in California back in March training and, and said, hey, we really have to get Mitch on the show. And I said, well, I agree, but I can't do it. I just don't know the history. I haven't been around in the sport long enough, and you do. And so Bill kindly got on an airplane and flew out to California from his home in Salt Lake and ran this interview. You're not going to hear me much in this one, but we went up to Mitch's sewing cave after a day of really good flying where I basically never saw the top of Mitch's glider. He flies the R12 these days and just an amazing pilot. I think he's got almost 60 years now. He was an early adapter of paragliders, flew in the first World Cup and he was also unbeatable for a number of years in aerobatics and hang gliding, a proper legend. And his stories and history, he's got an encyclopedic mind when it comes to names and history and has a lot. He's spent most of his time, he will say he's more of, the, you know, in the business of flying than in the, in the, in the, the comp flying scene or just being a pilot. He worked for years at Will's Wing, living out of his car and, and UP back when they had the Comet and they were kind of dominating the hang gliding world. But there's there's a ton of history here. And as I was listening to this, kind of slack-jawed the whole way through, it, and Bill and I talked about this afterwards, we are all truly, those of us who are in the sport now who weren't in the beginning are truly standing on the shoulders of giants, people like Mitch who 
shared in many ways, much more than tears and hard work. Uh, they spilled, also spilled a lot of blood and have seen a ton of their friends pass to making this sport what it is today. And I think we all need to be mindful of that. There's a lot here, of course, about risk and when things go wrong and how to really try to get it right. And But I think we all need to be a lot more knowledgeable and mindful, at least I do, after listening to this, about where it's come from and how and how this history can help us go forward and be uh, a better community. So to pull you in, because this is a long show, but I think once you start listening, you're going to dig it and stick with it. But to pull you in, our top of the show tip this week is actually a little segment from the show Bill was flying with Mitch a bunch of years ago out in Elsinore and Mitch had this shirt on and said, if you, if you, if you die, we split your gear. <laughs> and he wanted to ask him about that. That's pretty harsh. It's kind of in your face. And Mitch's answer is, is pretty eloquent. And again, it's on this whole thing of risk. You know, he didn't want to see his buddies die. And so he wanted to remind him that, Hey, this is important. Focus, get, get here, be here today, fly this glider and fly it safely. And so uh, here's a little here's a little tip that I really enjoyed from the show. And then we'll get into the actual show. Here we are on the margins of more than 9 million people and the 10th largest financial power in the world is right there. And we're on the edge of it. And me, you, you know, Linda, how many people out of that would take a hit like that and come back? It's like me, you, him, Linda. That's how many out of nine billion people. That that brings me to tears when I think about who we are and what we've done to get here. You know, and it's like I don't want to see my friends hurt. And if I have to wear a t-shirt that's sort of not politically correct, then yeah, then it's worth it. You know, if I, if I have to appear to be a monster to some people and frighten them away, it's worth it because I'd rather them be afraid of me than have to pick them up off the ground and sell their gear, you know, and fix their, their wreck and stuff. I just, you know, how do you address that? How do I look at myself as the guy that provides the gear to someone that gets hurt? You know, if I could go back in time and avoid that, I would, but you can't, there's no going back. So what do I do going forward? Just, I'd make no illusions that what we're doing, suspending ourselves under a puffy bag of mostly air under string is extremely dangerous. And you can make it safe, but you have to work hard to make it safe. There's a whole bunch of work and wisdom that has to go into being safe. And you're never gonna be safe flying a paraglider in midday convection. I don't care what you say. You know, I, I watched a video of Ganesio coming into land at Chelan, you know, where his glider does the snake 30 feet off the ground, you know. And I've had that happen. I've watched friends here get hurt on mojos. And that, that the, the cardinal sin of letting the thing turn. I watched a guy here coming in, doing S-turns behind the candy cane there, and the thing takes a 50% collapse, which, you know, is on a mojo, you should be able to keep it straight, but he didn't. You know, it turned 90 and pitched down and broken femur. Just that aviation like the sea is incredibly unforgiving of those small mistakes. And 
yeah, how, you know, if I can wear a t-shirt that impresses people of the reality, of what we're doing, that's cheap. That's free. You know, it doesn't cost anyone anything. Hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you enjoy the show with, with Bill Belcourt and Mitch Mackler. Mitch, I've heard the stories about your first hang glider flight, but you tell me, uh, what was your first flight in a hang glider? The first flight was lying to Eric Fair and telling him I knew how to set up and break down the glider. And um, he let me take it home because I allegedly was going to practice setting it up. But instead, we went out to um, Suicide Hill at Corona. It's right at the 1591 junction right there. Faces right into the onshores. And I hooked off of that and went straight into a thermal. It was like 1500 over. And then like typical is two o'clock in the afternoon has happened there. It started picking up and I started backing up and trying to speed up. And pretty soon I'm back down to about 150 feet over the my car, which is right on the summit of the hill. And it didn't look like I was going to make the windward side of the hill. So I turned around backwards and, and uh, flew through the rotor and got the thing turned around just in time to be swatted out of the ground about 30 feet. And I just woke up, I remember blinding flash and waking up in the clover. So it's like everything's kind of all green and red and glowing white and glad it was like flush down on top of me and I'm face down in the clover. And uh, yeah, I just basically got it turned into the wind. I got swatted out of the fucking sky from about 15 or 20 feet, and woke up in the clover. Flight number one. Flight number one. <laughs> Flight number two is after I put down tubes on the glider and then went and showed Eric Fair that I knew how to set it up and fly it at Salt Creek. So I had a little, they just flew off Salt Creek and it wasn't soarable. So I just like flew down about 15 to 20 feet and kind of went like this and like this and landed it, you know, on my belly. And, and he's like, yeah, whatever, you know, I paid for it. So it was mine and I left and that was it. I had just gotten off the boat. I had 12 grand in my pocket and a brand new glider and went flying all summer. So what, you know, what attracted you to the sport? That's the, the bigger story. I grew up in Newport and, uh, East Bay off of MacArthur was this gentle slope that hosted some of the early hang glider meets. There was a meet that was sponsored by Annie Greensprings and easy wider rolling papers where they threw a bunch of money and invited a bunch of guys to come out and had prizes for flying your bamboo and plastic and whatever there was everything from bamboo and plastic to volmer jensen's vj10 that was a, a 15 to 20 to 1 foot launch sailplane with a hang cage and a three axis stick control kind of a, a rectangular slightly tapered um unswept wing with a cruciform tail so there's volmer jensen in this thing it's like 20 to 1 you know stand up armpit hang cage control stick thing along with guys doing bamboo and plastic off the East Bay of Newport thing. And I saw that me and my cousin, we were coming home from church with our parents. They would drive the back Bay road and look at the hang gliders and shit. And I remember being up on launch and find this little balsa wood glider about like this, that gotten, they had somebody, you know, one of the soaring geeks had, had thrown it and lost it. And me and my cousin found it and spent, you know, that, that afternoon after church throwing this thing off and, and it was trimmed perfectly. It would just go out and start soaring these big circles and climb out two or 300 feet over the bluff and disappear into the weeds and running after it. And 
So that was grade school that we saw gliders flying on the East Bay after church in 72. That was, well, no, I went to, I started high school in 72. So this was the sixties, late sixties. We saw that. And then in high school would have been 74, 75 when my cousin was graduating, he was a year older than me. So he got a car right away and he, you know, he wanted to fly really bad. And he found a glider that was just kind of sitting in this neighbor's side yard. So he just grabbed it off the fence and, and threw it on his car and went out to go fly it one day. And turns out it was this custom painted glider. It had like this MC Escher geodesic sphere thing on it. So it was this total custom painting, you know, and my cousin like um, opens the thing up and it's like, oh shit, I can't fly this thing, you know. So he folds it back up, takes it back and gives it back to the guy. And, and then eventually went and bought a glider and I went with him to Tory when he was flying a Sun Standard when Bennett had already come out with the 6D. So the 6D was a pretty high aspect um, floppy sail with fiberglass battens. But compared to a standard, you know, the Sun Standard was a 90 degree nose angle standard Rogaldo. And I went down to Torrey and watched him fly that. And he sorted around for a while and landed at the beach. And we talked about it. It's like, wow, look at that glider. Phoenix 6D. It's like, wow, I want to get one of those, you know. And that was the first time I saw the soaring thing. I wasn't flying yet. I was riding dirt bikes. Um, I'd broken my elbow skateboarding up at the Concrete Wave in Ventura after it was closed. I went off, I, I pushed off from the coping in one of the deep pools and landed flat on my back on the flat with my arms back like that and broke the corner of my elbow off. So my cousin asked me to drive for him one day at Elsinore after that Tory run. And uh, he had just gotten his new glider. He'd just gotten a Trampanol Seawings Century 210. And I'm riding around on my BMX bike in a cast, watching him fly around. And I just had this dawning on me where maybe if I get away from wheels on the ground, I'll start stop slapping into the ground so hard and we'll get hurt. And that was kind of a decision I made. I was watching my cousin fly around Santa Ana's at Elsinore with a broken arm. Um, um, I got that boat job, got off the boat with 11 grand and bought a hang glider, bought all brand new kit from uh, Eric Fair right across the street from Mills Wing. Went and worked another, flew all summer, that summer, 79. Went back to work on the boat, um, October through April, um, 79-80. And the boat and me went separate ways. I was drinking and doing drugs and not not doing well on the boat. They wanted me out and I wanted out. And um, I sold the Raven and bought that 510 for 1300 bucks. And when I went to go buy a shipping tube, to send the, the Raven to Texas to the guy that bought it. I walked into Will's wing and they didn't have shipping tubes. They were waiting for a truck. So they asked me if I wanted to wait. So I said, sure, I'll wait a couple hours. And I noticed that there was this Japanese guy, sketchy looking Japanese dude. He was like sick and kind of scrawny and weird looking. And he was filling out a job application in the front office along with some other guys, so Gary Applegate. And uh, um, it's just guys, you know, I. I was, I was done with the boat. So I asked him if I could fill out an application and he said, yeah, sure. So, you know, we got talking and I got to talking to somebody, Pearson or Kells or someone. And, and uh, they just like, we want this guy. And I went to work that day. I helped him unload the truck and got stuck there for seven years.
And then what got you into aerobatics? That was the crucible. I mean, I'm in Will's wing and the president of the company encouraged me and coached me and Kells. And the, the other part about doing aerobatics was the, the weekend scene at Elsinore was dominated by the UP factory and UP at that time, 80, 81 was top of the world. They were the king. The Comet went everything. The Comet had the unfair performance advantage. It was the first really good, stable, bomb-proof, high-performance double-surface glider at the time. Wheelswing was still competing with the Harrier, which is an exposed crossbar, you know, and uh, the Comet just cleaned up everything. It had a walking speed performance advantage over anything else out the day. I mean, they were competing against gliders that still had deflexor leading edges, you know, the big wire struts with wires and tiny little inch and a half tubes for the leading edge. And and the Comet was inch and three quarter spars and, you know, bit bigger, heavier, everything with the enclosed crossbar and, and uh, I just remember going out to the E one day with my Raven and it's light wind and the Raven's tail heavy and really slow. I'm like, fuck this. I can't launch a no wind at the E on the tail heavy gliders. But I just sat there. I remember watching a gaggle going up a couple thousand feet and two guys peel off the side of the gaggle and just do wing overs like falling leaf, you know, 2000 feet, just wing overs all the way down the side of the gaggle to a couple hundred over the saddle. And then, just right back up again, you know, and I just, I watched that for an hour, just, you know, along with everything else that was going on. I remember trippy looking gliders from Japan, some trippy guys from Japan with wires that were coated in this weird pale blue plastic shit. Just one of those moments when I, I, you show up somewhere and everything is new and the colors are all more rich than they should be or something. And, and yeah, I just had that, that moment watching, that aerobatic routine and then one day i was out going out to hidden valley because i was a thousand foot south facing windward site that gets that california eddy so i just it was a cliff launch so i can launch a tail heavy glider from the cliff just huck off you know this rock and that was where i spent most of my first year and i went out there one day and saw dave gibson who was kind of their lead nighttime loft guy and as i'm driving up to the launch site i see gibson going just above launch from below launch like that doing these 90 degree wing overs we hammerhead just above the ridge like that and then dive below the ridge and come up over on the other side like that and hammerhead and just back and forth like that disappearing and appearing like that and doing these hammerhead wing overs back and forth in front of launch so that was my environment that was what i saw all the time around me when i went flying those guys doing aerobatics and it was all the 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 A and B team from uh, from UP. The A and B teams were the top two teams that were in the Manufacturers League meet, which was the end of May, the Memorial Day big meet at the time. It was world meet. So Moyes, Bennett, UP, Wills Wing had three-man teams. So there's the A team and the B team, and then there was the E team. And the E team was a bunch of guys from Elsinore that were UP factory workers and good pilots, but they weren't good enough to, to be selected for the A team, but they were good enough to, to win the days, you know, and, and fly competitively. But since they weren't, you know, compelled by the factory, it was kind of a, more like a party team. 
where they flew well and could win days, but didn't care enough to be serious about it. And was more like kind of the, the beer drinking team that could win the, win the competition, but didn't care to be that serious about it. And that's kind of where the E-team thing came from. Um, no, it's good. I never knew that. Yeah. And so when did you start competing uh, in aerobatics? Yeah. Well, 79 started at Will's Wing in the loft. And I was living in Costa Mesa at this little rental party house that we had near uh, Santa Ana River. Um, got my second DUI. So I moved from that party house into my van in the parking lot at Will's Wing. And then that was it. That was my entire life. It was work. And Friday night, I would bail and go to Elsinore and find the party Friday night, fly all day Saturday and Sunday, and then go back to work at Will's. And I started doing aerobatics in that Raven. But once I got the 510, that was different. You know, I, Kells actually encouraged me to go out and do uh, – sort of a test contest he had at Crestline out here one time. And I entered in the 510 and he, you know, I was doing like 130 degree maneuvers to the right and like nineties to the left. And Kels, you know, sat me down and said, here, this is what you're doing. That's when he started coaching me. And that's when I started refining things. And then I blew up the sensor uh, doing my, my first reserve deployment on the, um, the ESS 25. Um, and then I just started flying employee gliders. They had a, a 180 duck that they put some prototype laminate um, scrim on the trailing edge. And that was the Willswing employee glider. So I started flying that thing all the time. And Kels, you know, continued to coach me. I was continuing to do uh, production test flight. So production test flying was kind of like aerobatic training school. You know, I'd go through the production test flight on the glider, make sure it flies straight, flies trim, and the sail's clean and everything, and then do a couple of wingovers. And Kels watch me, and I'd land, and we'd talk about what I was doing on the way back up the hill. So it was just three to six flights a day of coaching and stuff like that. And then whenever I would go out and fly with the wheelswing guys and do aerobatics, Kels would watch me and coach me and help me. And plus he, he gave me the tools to learn how to progress in the beginning too. the, the four things, um, heading and, and pilot input in the dive, um, heading pilot input and glider attitude at keel level at the initiation of the maneuver, um, heading pilot input and attitude of the glider at the apex of the maneuver at the height. And then every th same thing at the X of the maneuver. So most people at the time, you know, like when you think about doing hang glider aerobatics, just go out and wang the glider around and you end up doing some kind of spiral 270 thing or whatever. But the way the aerobatic scoring system that Kells and, and Dan Reconelli and the other guys that were involved in aerobatics prior to the, like in 79, 80, 81, the early Telluride years when they started doing aerobatics competition at Telluride, they developed a scoring system that was loosely based on freestyle skiing kind of thing where you have difficulty points and style points and versatility points. In hang gliders, there's four maneuvers, a loop, a climb over, which is uh, entry and apex more than 90 degrees different. 
So that's a climb over and this is a rollover. So entry and apex less than 90 degrees off heading like that. And then a loop is just everything lined up and then a spin. So that's it. Four versatility or, you know, half a point for, you know, two versatility points. Um, bank angle at the apex divided by 10. All right. So 180 degrees inverted is 18. And that's how the scoring system works. So in order to score high, you have to have, you know, 180 um, at the top and all four maneuvers. And that was it. I just, he taught me how to, to win meets by flying the scoring system, by winning the score. Um, you know, to do that, you have to basically do enough loops and line them up and then have the other three maneuvers all in a routine that looks good from start to finish. It doesn't have discontinuity or stops or fuck ups and side slips, anything like that. And so that's what I would do. I would just go out at Elsinore and practice, do a 3000 foot climb over the E pull out of the thermal, do a routine back down to launch level, climb back out do that for like two and a half hours or so about five or six routines. And I'd be thrashed and tired and going and land and, and then off to Telluride. And, and the first year was 1984. I went there with a, a highly modified 180 duck and got second place behind Eric Raymond. Um, yeah, just kept going back. And I won it every year from the 85 to 88. I won, well, I didn't win 87 because I quit. I quit Wills. And I kind of consciously didn't give a fuck about winning that year. Even though I was flying a Wheelsman glider, Jamie Lasser had loaned me his, uh, his HP2. And the HP and the HP2 was a, a major paradigm shift. The duck had a keel pocket, it was a foot tall keel pocket. So the, the lever, the control bar is like a foot longer than, than, it, than it is just a couple of years later in 1985. And in 1985, when Wilson came out with the HP, the, it was so much faster and had so much better pitch control. It went from being really difficult to do a loop in the 180 duck to being really easy to do loops in the, 180, in the, um, the HP 170. So that was when I started doing multiples. Like uh, there was a Tom Tatum film, Double High, that was shot at Telluride in 1982 when everybody just shit themselves when Ron Young did four loops in a row in a Conant Waiting Five at the meet. Nobody had ever seen multiple loops in a hang glider prior to that. And Ron went out and did four perfect loops in this 185 Comet in front of Tom Tatum's cameras at Telluride in 82. And, uh, and I saw that. And Eric Raymond was doing loops in, in comments and, and rigid wings. He was flying the Sunseed. The Sunseed was this trippy rigid wing thing that had a dihedral root and anhedral tips. And he was practicing in 1981 out here to, to win by doing a maneuver that no one else had done because the, the, the Sunseed would tumble. He could actually like, I forget what it was. I think he would just like slow the thing down and jam both of the rudders on, which I had like tip uh, aileron kind of things. The, the anhedral tips had control surfaces on them. And I think what he did is he just slowed the thing down and slammed the rudders down and the thing would pitch over forward. Just go kaboom like that and recover. So 
he was planning on doing that at Telluride. And by doing a maneuver that no one else could do, you win the meet. You get one extra half point for that versatility that no one else can do and win the meet. But the glider folded up. It like went around once or twice and then started rolling. And after it went round once or twice and rolled, it just went fucking wings clapped together and broke. And he went spiraling down sandwich into the wreckage and bounced off a steep face of the canyon at marshes somewhere and survived without a reserve so when did you first compete internationally 88 that was the the after the resurrection of up in 87 uh yuichi onsuka came out he was publishing a really slick really pretty air sports magazine and he showed up at the E with uh, an axis that JC and Larry had built in Japan with uh, uh, Yusuke Yamazaki's money. Um, Yusuke, that's a whole interesting story. Yusuke was a young, fairly wealthy Japanese guy that came over in the early days and flew off of the 1500 Escape Country and climbed out in some funky old single surface glider and uh, um, drifted up and back and couldn't make it back into the valley at launch. So he landed in overhead chaparral, quarter mile, half mile behind the launch at the 1500. And it's like an August day and west side of the, uh, the Cleveland range, it's probably a hundred degrees. He was completely lost and disoriented and had no idea how to get out and it was in overhead Manzanita and Sugarbush and that kind of stuff. So he basically sat himself down to die, you know, to die a good samurai death in the wilderness after a, an epic flight. And George Fullman was this guy who was a gregarious sociopath kind of guy who had watched Yusuke go up and back and land in the bushes and live there and flew there all the time. And he went and got him. So Yusuke's sitting down there, you know, saying his prayers and, getting ready to die of exposure. And uh, here comes George Foreman, helps him break the glider down and help it back out to take off. So Yuski set Foreman up with UP Sports at the Y, just on the north side of Dana Point, million dollar piece of retail property. Um, Yuski and UP Japan set Foreman up there with sailboarding shop for 30 years from the mid seventies through the probably the early 90s, I think, before the whole thing kind of folded up and disappeared. And it's something else now. But, you know, as for all those years, as you were driving south along the coast highway in the north end of Dana Point, there's a UP sports shop. And that's how that came about. It was George Fullman saved Yuski's life. But where Yuski inserted himself into the UP story was that in 78, 79, Brock and UP were in a lot of trouble. Financially, they weren't doing well. And UP in Japan was doing well. Yusuke was a competent businessman and he understood the market there. And he had put together a flight park and a bar and a place for people to hang out. So there was a UP sports bar um, in Tokyo. There was a UP sports facility, a large area with a container storage area and a, a container dressed out like a Malibu beach house with a bar in it. And 
So he had the social scene worked out in Japan really well. And they had a big market in Japan for teaching and kiteboarding and hang gliding. And, and uh, when Brock went, got into trouble in the late 70s, Yusuke came over and gave him 15 grand and got him back in business. And he hired Roy Haggard. Haggard designed and built the Comet. And by late 1980, mid 1981, UP was the biggest and best manufacturer in the world. And then they malinvested in the ultralight market in the early 80s and the ultralight market collapsed. And there was also a lawsuit where some guy had badly or incorrectly assembled a, an older Firefly, which is a single surface deflexor and old glider. And he had put it together wrong and crashed it and either gotten paralyzed or dead. So there was a civil suit and malinvestment in the aero ultralight. And that was it in 80, late 83, 84, UP, the once biggest hang glider manufacturer in the world, folded up and was stuffed in a storage unit in Temecula and Brock was done. And I was working at Willswing. I'd been working at Willswing in the loft since you know late 79 and watched that all happen. And all the world-class pilots that were UP pilots by 1985 were all Willswing pilots. And then Yoichi shows up with that UP axis that he and Larry had built in Japan. And what had happened is like sometime late in 86 or early 87, Yusuke had contacted JC, who had been working um, the last years with Brock and Haggard and Temecula. So they invited JC and Larry to go over there and build UP hang gliders to design and build a modern UP hang glider in Japan. So they came up with the Axis 15. Then 87, Yuichi showed up with that glider on launch at Elsinore with a giant hard case full of thousands of dollars worth of Nikon camera equipment. And I just walked up to him and I said, wow, it's a cool glider. You know, it's like, can I fly it? He goes, yeah. It's like, can you, and he knew who I was. So he said, can I put a camera on your glider? I said, sure. It's like, I'll give you all the rights to the photos. If you give me a trip to Japan, I want to go fly in the Yamaha Sky Grand Prix. It was a $2,500, $5,000 prize, um, hand gliding kind of short course competition in, in Japan. It had been going on for a while and I'd read about it and thought it would be cool, you know, to go race in this Yamaha Sky Grand Prix. So I, I extorted a camera mount and some loops on that axis for a trip to Japan and then went back to work at Willsling. Didn't think anything about it. I was working in the loft at Wills at the time. And, and uh, three or four months later, Yoichi shows back up again with a plane ticket. It's like, we're ready to go. I didn't even have a passport. And I showed up, I panicked and got a passport and showed up at LAX without a visa and had to go back and get a Japanese visa. And, and then I went to Japan and I showed up at Tokyo Narita with instructions on how to get on a train and take a train to Osaka. So I was on my own for a while, which was pretty, pretty interesting. Dumbass gringo in, in Japan. So I managed to get to the hotel that they, they booked for me in Osaka and they came and picked me up the next morning and took me to launch at this place called Iwakuni, which was just idyllic Japanese fishing village, a little island in a little crescent bay, bitching little beach and bitching little houses in a Japanese fishing village. And uh, about 2,000 foot 
ridge with this amazing expanded steel ramp built on the front of a little cluster of towers on the top of the hill. And this glider was sitting there, it's shiny, brand new axis, all mylar, top and bottom laminate cloth with this pink, bright fluorescent pink UP inlay on the bottom. You know? And I, I had my harness with me and I'd pull my harness out and hook into the thing and huck off the ramp and just boated right up to about 1500 over and did three or four loops into the wind right over the launch ramp and boated right up to about almost two grand over. It was getting better. And so I pushed out in front about a half a mile and then started doing loops back towards launch. And on the third loop, I was right over the ramp about a hundred feet and the thing broke at 20, you know, classic 25 degrees nose up like that where the, all the highest lift loads are the right side leading edge broke. And there's remember that moment here, this clunk and the gutter kind of goes, like that, and I look over, there's no right wing. And it's like, oh fuck. And I look down, grab the chute, fire the reserve out behind me like that. The brakes come on, the glider swings under the reserve, it does like one, two, crash in the top of the trees. And uh, it was gentle, it was like, it was like better, softer than a stand up landing, you know, just little jungle it's like 15 20 foot high trees on a super steep slope so the ground is like this far away from me and i'm perched in the tree so i just climb up in the bar and unhook my harness and climb out of the harness and throw the harness down throw my helmet down and climbing out of the tree and here comes this wave of japanese people you know, coming down to rescue me and they just they whisked me away it's like i just climbed out of the tree and it's like no you know you're not gonna get the gliders we'll handle that and they just I'm in a truck off to the factory. So that's when I got to the factory that they were where they were building the axis in Japan. And they were using this really trippy way of, of building the sails where they would roll the fabric out on the floor and then take these mylar patterns and lay them over the top of the fabric. And then the mylar patterns had the the shape of the panels cut on it, but with little holes and segments along the panels. So they would do they would make pinholes and then take these magic rulers that were pieces of mylar with a real gentle curve on it and then connect the dots. And I took one look at that and said, this is retarded. You guys are taking twice as long as it takes to make a sail. The way Willswing does sails is you put the pattern on the floor and the pattern has this pattern tape on it, which is like masking tape, except it's um, like three or four, 30 seconds thick. So you lay the fabric over the top of the tape and then you use the the edge of the tape to guide scissors and the pencil. So you draw lines with the edge of the tape and then you cut along the edge of the tape with the scissors. And so I told them, I think I can make a sale in half the time that you guys are making sales. And uh, I offered, it's like, you guys want to start building UP sales again? Let's talk about it. And so I went home and I, well, I got, I got to fly the next day and they came up with another glider for me. It's just a regular Dacron axis. And I flew around their little pylon course and landed and had the little barbecue in the afternoon and went back to the factory and talked to them some more and, and then went home and I was still working at Will's wing. And I talked to them about what I was doing. And Meyer told me that he kind of had a problem with UP supplying me with gliders when I was working there. So we started 
really earnestly talking with JC about maybe making some kind of a future. So JC put together a contract proposal to go back to Japan for six months and work 24 seven and design 12 gliders, um, three different models in four sizes each. And he put together a you know proposal to make decent money and work seven days a week to, to build all those gliders and certify them and everything. And, um, we wrangled over that all through the fall of 1987. And when it looked like it was going to happen, I quit, I quit Wells. And all of a sudden uh, the Japanese just stopped communicating with us. And JC later came to realize that it was all over this like 300 yen per diem thing that he had tacked on there just so that we weren't going to be out of pocket with a bunch of food and stuff like that. And he realized later on that the Japanese style of doing business requires some sort of back and forth and bargaining concession thing. And he hard lined him on the contract. So they just stopped talking to him. And then three months later, Yusuke shows up in Elsinore with a suitcase of $50,000 in cash and wants to start a hang glider factory. And JC and I talked about it and I wasn't comfortable running the entire show or designing a glider from scratch. So I, I knew of Bob Schutte who'd been designing and building gliders in New Zealand for a while. And he had designed a glider called the Kia that was a really nice um, high performance glider. So I suggested that that JC and Bob and I get together and produce the Axis 15 and the Kia as the Axis 13 in Elsinore. And we started out in a little thousand square foot unit right by Main Street and made a few gliders and did some vehicle testing. And the, the Japanese, Yusuke and Matsuo came back with more money and said that they want to get serious about it and they want to start pumping out gliders. So they rented a 2,500 square foot brand new tilt up right at the 74 and um, 15 freeway junction right that they had, they had just built it brand new tilt up still had that fresh paint smell. And they rented that thing for 2,500 bucks a month. I started hiring people we built a mezzanine and a sail loft and started pumping gliders out. And uh, they bought, Mark West's test vehicle. Mark West had this old Dodge truck that had his first computerized uh, vehicle test system on it that fed two load cells, a vertical and horizontal load cell down that attached to the keel of the glider. And then it had another load cell that attached to a separate fixture to the base tube of the glider. And uh, the boom that suspended the glider about 15 feet above the ground off the front of the truck and that was the hang glider wind tunnel, the poor man's wind tunnel thing. And that was the most advanced test vehicle at the time. Wilswing was doing the same thing, a truck with a boom, but they were using spring scales. And, you know, they would just hook a fishing scale to the base tube and pull it back like that and film it with a 16 millimeter camera and, and that kind of thing. But Mark had put electronic load cells in there that fed into a little a palm top Toshiba computer running a basic program that he had written himself and it would do, you know, like 10 readings per second for lift, lift, 
and drag and pitch force from the base dude. But you, that was driving the truck at the speeds, holding on to this thing, standing on the platform on the top of the truck, driving at speed with the glider. And that was how we did the pitch test back then. And uh, um, so I learned about that stuff. I learned to to fix the code when it malfunctioned. You know, JC and I were out testing all the time. We did the, the Axis 15, the Axis 13. I started on the intermediate glider, the Comet, of regurgitation of the Comet without a keel pocket as an intermediate glider. So I was really busy and learned a lot about glider stability running the vehicle, me and JC out there monkeying around on the top of the truck. And had all kinds of adventures. And late, after we had done the Axis, I was doing the load testing on the Comet 3185 and figured out that as soon as the sun goes down, the conditions for testing are perfect. As soon as the convection stops, all of a sudden the air is totally smooth and all the readings, the airspeed readings and everything would just flatten out. Because what we've been doing was getting up at dawn and testing until it got convective. And then you, you couldn't hold an airspeed. You got to hold an airspeed constant for three or four seconds with the target loads and the target speeds and everything. But when it starts getting convective at 1030 in the morning, the airspeed's all over the place and you just have to stop. So I was there all day with the Comet doing other stuff until late at night. And I'm doing one of the load test runs and just notice that the airspeed is just dead smooth the whole way through. So I started testing at night and uh, I forgot there was a stop sign down at the end of the road. One time we were doing the negative 130 test, which is the glider mounted backwards. And uh, you don't have to go very fast and you have to go about 30 miles an hour. But when you get going, the tips go from up like this. They just bend straight down. It's an aggravated worst case load scenario. So when the tips came down, I was kind of in the right hand lane and forgot there was a stop sign there and it's dark and it's like man let's fucking take out the four by four and wiped out the whole right side of the glider leading edge and everything little adventures like that but yeah load testing was really fun i mean jc was really amazing to work with he's really sharp he'd been hang gliding since he was 15 ran away from home and really had a head for aerodynamics and testing and it's just really just awesome to work with. And we did stuff that nobody had really done. We did high speed pitch tests, which was so really useful because of what I was doing at the time, doing aerobatics and the glider. But we had a few days where we went out and drove the vehicle at like 50, 60 miles an hour and ran the glider at low positive angles and found some strange things happening with the sail at 60 miles an hour, the sail would try to rotate forward around the, the spars where the bottom surface kind of pushes down and back and the top surface lifts up and tries to rotate forward around the sail and the, the pitch readings would just go all over the place and get as soon as the bottom surface kind of pooches down and it, the pitch force would go away and that was really interesting dealing with what happens on king posted gliders as the glider goes from a few degrees positive to neutral to zero angle the that's the nut to crack as to how to get it to come back nose up and that was the the, the difficult part of building gliders back then is having the, the 
static stability system function at low positive angles without being engaged at trim. Because if the static stability systems are engaged at trim, it's like bolting the sail rigidly to the frame. It's rigid and it, it becomes a dangerous handling issue. You know, where if the the reflex bridles, which were lines that attach from the top of the king post to the trailing edge of the sail, if those are tight when you're at trim, it's like having no flex in a flex wing. It makes an extremely dangerous handling characteristic. So that was we we're trying to find that line with the vehicle tests and especially at high speed and figure out what was actually going on and stuff. And there was I mean, how other how what other way can you ever do that? But stand on the top of the truck at 60 miles an hour holding on to this glider moving the, the the pitch through these low angles and watching the sail everything's flapping and the wind's roaring and and you watch the sail just go like that and do this weird mutation and you watch the pitch force just reduce by like 30 percent or so and there's no other way to get that experience there's, there's only a small handful of people in the world that have ever done that me the wheelswing guys the guys at Icaro you know, there's a small handful of people that have that have done that level of testing. Bert Schmidler, one of the, the DHV guy there, the, the truck there. But yeah, those kind of things were invaluable. It's it's warped my perspective. You know, when I talk to recreational people who can't remember the make and model of their glider or what size it is or anything like that. It's, you know, it's, and that's not my planet. Yeah. And so, um, how was the scene different in Europe? And so that was the scene here. You went over and did some international, yeah. uh, aerobatic competitions in Europe and, you know, uh, how's the scene different? What were those like? Europe is really amazing. It's uh, the Japanese sent me there in 1988 to take over not take over, but to introduce their UP distribution people to the new company, to the Axis. So I went over there with Axis demos and Heidi Bloomhumber was running UP Europe and they had been marketing a glider that was uh, UP rebranded. And I can't remember who built it. But they had a, a nice little king posted glider or something back then. And oh no, it was a yeah, JC had designed the Glidezilla before Pete Brock's UP went out of business. And they were marketing a European made Glidezilla over there. And it wasn't going well. They weren't selling a lot of them. And they didn't carry the same reputation as the American UP brand. So when we came over with the Axis, we had a glider that was tested and extremely robust. And we knew it, you know, and it would, they wanted that reputation. So we just replaced the, the UP Europe Glidezilla with the Axis. And I went over there and competed in that Rock Brune that had the Ilinx. It was 88 over the bay there in Rock Brune, the same place where they land the Exops, mm. right there near Monaco. Mm. It was a meet called Ilinx. And they invited me over there in 88. And I won that on the Axis. And then uh, I think it was the next year, like 1990, I went to another meet that was in 
the Alpago Valley in Switzerland. There was a real small meet. And it was kind of Enrico Egli and Heinz Zwissig were Swint's pilots at the time. And they kind of made it happen. So we towed up out of this little airfield behind uh, this big old Atlas uh, hang glider on a trike thing and, and did this aerobatic meet over the Alpago Valley. Just beautiful place in Switzerland. Um, I got like second place, I think, behind Heinz on that one. Amazing thing about Europe was how friendly everybody was. I ate at French farmhouses, 500-year-old French farmhouse. I ate family dinner with pilots. I got to listen to them. You know, one of the guys was cool enough to to translate for me where they were they were making fun of one of their friends had a southern French accent. So it was, it was just cool to listen to them talk and explain to me how they're making fun of their their southern French friends, southern French drawl and stuff like that and sitting in a farmhouse with a, these massive hand-hewn timbers. Just just one another one of those moments where the colors are richer and the place is just like magic when you've never been there before. Um, yeah, that was all part of the European experience with UP. I went to St. Hilaire and got a flight off the ramp at the top of St. Hilaire. And it was a crappy day, like sort of around like below launch and stuffed it in where they have the big venue, the big party thing. I just I was flying around kind of level with that and got up just high enough to where I kind of came in the side hill landed there and it's another thing just green grass is so alien to out here it's everything brown and rocks and cactus it's another one of those moments where was, the sky was bluer and the grass was greener and then uh you won uh uh hang gliding world aerobatic championships like six times something like that that's what they called Telluride because there really wasn't anything else consistent. But yeah, I won uh, 85, 86. I got third in 87 because I'd quit and wheels wing and purposely just didn't give a shit. I was not hitting my loops on heading, flying Jamie's glider. And then uh, I won 89, 90, and 90. I won three in a row after that. And oh, I don't have it here. But there was a. Uh, uh, a little trophy that we'd been passing around. I think it was 85. One of the Telluride locals that was involved in organizing the meet just jumped up on the bar in the Black Diamond one day and pulled this thing off the shelf that was some Brazilian guy had brought and donated to the fly-in. And it was a piece of thick teak and about a foot square with this really nicely, um, like three really nice natural terminated quartz crystals with a silver wire and a, a handmade silver comet a hang glider attached to this wire which is just a beautiful trophy of quartz you know terminated quartz crystals with this silver glider you know over the top of it you know it's spun on the wire so you put it upside down you know? and so it's like a hang glider doing the loop thing and uh this guy nick after I'd won in 1985, he just jumped up on the bar and pulled that thing off the shelf and gave it to me. He said, you won. You, you should have this. So I took it home. And, you know, I brought it back in 86 and took it home in 86. Brought it back in 87 and gave it to Aaron or John, whoever won in that year. Yeah. 
and then came back in 88 and got it back in 88. And then I won it in 90 and won it in like 91. And then I had a kid and I just pushed off. And I, I just I won it three times in a row. I'm keeping the trophy. Sort of like the president, like the Schneider trophy. If you win it three times in a row, you get to keep it. <laughs> so I kept it. I still have it. But I went back in the last Airmen's Rendezvous in 99 and uh, won that one too. That was the last Airmen's Rendezvous at Telluride. And then uh, once you get in the Paraguay. Yeah, that was part of the UP scene. We were building gliders in Elsinore and sending them to Japan. And Matsuo, Matsuo Atsushi, Matsuo was the, the Japanese principal that was kind of our CFO and our liaison with the with the, the owners of the company in Japan. He was sort of like marketing and development guy in Tokyo. And he got the, the word from on high that UP wanted to get into paragliding in like 89, probably 90 around in there. So they scrounged up whatever paragliders were available to look at rebranding whatever was popular and good back then. So we had a, a Gen Air, which was, a, well, it put Matsuo in the hospital, broke his back, broke the fuck out of his back and put him in the hospital for six months. And that was a trippy, super ancient glider. It had five open cells in the middle and three closed cells on the tip. And the super low, like low aspect, glider that was really not much evolved from a skydiving square and then i had a randonews 13 cell and then some weird nine cell and some weird speed seven cell glider and we start matsuo's office folded up when he was in the hospital for six months so entire contents of his office landed in my office at elsinore and i sat i, I knew the story and i sat and looked at those things like poisonous snakes in my office for a while until finally we got up the nuts to go and start flying him off the little, the training hills in Elsinore. And then we survived our training hill flights, so we started flying them off Edwards. And they weren't good enough to make the landing zone at Edwards. So I landed in the bushes. I tattooed my forehead. Like I, I came up just short of a, a burned manzanita that had run, you know, overgrown again and was reliving it. And I landed just short of it and kind of crashed into it like that and got a burnt stick like spoon right in my forehead and that little black dot right there for a couple of years and had some ridiculous sketchy launches because we had no instruction no reserves nothing the real simple board and strap strap arrangement one of the first times i think the first or second flight that i flew off edwards i actually hooked into the adjuster fucking things and had the, the pass-through buckles right and there was like the big webbing thing with three bar tacks and a big loop for adjusting the shoulders. I'm looking at this thing. I don't know what it is. And here's a loop and the carabiner fits in there. So I hooked the carabiner into there and flew off Edwards and didn't figure it out until later that it was the adjuster buckle on the shoulder, the adjuster thing, you know, the pull tab on the, on the two slot buckle. And yeah, shit like that. There was a, there was a cliff launch just to the right of the E and we did a couple launches where this looks good. There's just enough to lay the glider out and get a couple of steps, you know, and go off about a 20 foot drop off. And then the E, you know, 1500 feet of nearly one-to-one. -one. And I remember 
the glider's up and I step off that edge and bounce off the cliff a couple times before the thing starts flying away from the ridge. Yeah. We put Bostic on that random news 13 cell off of Edwards one time and, and the way those things were trimmed, you had to pull like quarter break on to get best glide. So, um, I told Bostic, it's like, yeah, you got to pull a little bit of break on or you're not going to make the landing zone. And he takes off and he's fully hands up. So I go, break. And he pulls a little break on. I go, more break. And he stalls the thing. <laughs> yeah, and then recovers. You know, and this is all 20 feet away from Edwards. Just nasty. You know? Yeah, that was, we had no idea. There was no, no beta, no instruction, no nothing back then. Yeah, it's amazing. It survived. But and two years later, Greg Smith. Yeah, and you're two years later, Greg Smith, and then you're at the the PWC, first PWC in the Owens in '92. Well, before that, the when Greg Smith came on the scene, we hired Scott Gresset, and Gresset did an Aveco van tour and handed out the Airman Vector, which is Jin's design that was made at 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 Daikyo, at, at Adele, and that went okay, but at the end of after that season. Greg had been doing really well with Condor and had won the, the nationals up at the North side that year. And uh, the powers that be at UP heard about him. I had never heard about him. I didn't know anything about him. I knew Scott, but somebody had suggested that Greg could do a lot better job. So they hired Greg and I hooked up with Greg and we got along really well. And he came up with uh, Comet CX, which was a pretty well evolved glider. Booker had won the worlds on it in Europe that year. Andre Bucher. Yeah, and it was a it was a semi elliptical, pretty well evolved past the other crap, the Randonews, the Gen Air. It was way evolved past that. And uh, Greg takes me up to Saboba to to do my maneuvers clinic. And uh, on the way up there, he's like, "You hang glider pilot assholes! You just you throw your reserve every time you you know anything goes wrong with your main." So you're not going to get a reserve. You're going to, you're going to learn how to fix the main. So he throws me off at like nine o'clock in the morning. And then I go out and do a frontal and a full stall and with what, you know, no reserve. And I, I full stall the thing. It goes behind me. I freak out. I go hands up. The thing goes past 90 and I fall slack line past it like that. And it opens up symmetrical. We <laughs> do it again. <laughs> go down and land and, and uh, yeah, do that again one more time. You know, that full stall was a little bit, you want to hold the full stall a little bit before you let it up. And so we go up again the second time. And now it's 1030 on a regular day. And the next thing I know, I'm a grand over and the thing, I start taking hits and I'm not moving forward. And the thing has trimmers on it, but I'm too retarded to, you know, speed the trims up and get in front of launch. So on my second flight that day, my maneuvers clinic, I get blown over the back at Saboba. So I go a thousand feet up and start going over the bat and then start taking hits. So I start trying to go that way and try to start get out the canyon to the left. And I didn't get very far, I got like a half a mile. Now I'm definitely way in the rotor. So I took a bunch more hits, you know, when I'm right behind the ridge in the worst part of the rotor. And then I got down below the rotor and it started getting smooth again. And I remember I, there was kind of clear ground underneath me, about 15 feet underneath me. It looked like a place that wasn't a giant pile of rocks. And 
I was like, this looks good enough. I just buried the brakes and, and installed the thing and, and went in about 10 feet, landed on my ass and jumped up and survived my maneuvers clean in the reserve. How did it go from there to being in the PWC in 92? Yeah. Greg went to Korea and worked with Jin and made the katana. He came back with a katana and handed me a, one of those things and we were off to the Owens. So I was the start of that, that two year um, Owens Valley Nationals, the first PWC. Yeah, 91, I was in good shape. 92, I had I, I gotten injured and I was still in a cat or an, I had an air cast splint on my ankle in 92, but 91, I just went there, couldn't launch. It was like total hack, incompetent, let launch. And then Bob England had been training, you know, so he was really good, competent ground handling. And uh, um, he was also, Bob, Ted Boyce, and me were the only three hang glider pilots in the meet. We were the only three guys at, out of 25 or so that year that had any experience time over distance racing. Everybody else were climbers and skydivers. And we were the only ones that knew how to basically work the column where you're climbing quickly. You know, don't top anything out. Just do the quick climb so you can get to the next point. And, um, and I remember I'm following Bob. Like, I, I, Bob was really good. I, he, was, he was a way better pilot than me. But I had a walking speed performance advantage. If I could see him, I could catch him. So I would try to launch with Bob, and Bob would just whoop, totally graceful, whoop, whoop, off he goes, up he goes, off towards, towards Paiute, and I'm like, three or four attempts later, I'm getting really pissed, crashing my glider in the bushes below Gunner, and finally I get off, and Bob's like the far side of Paiute, but I caught him, you know, I caught him before we got to Benton and won, and just every day, if I could, I just followed him. And I just kept catching up to him every time, like, as long as I could keep the glider open. And, uh, yeah, that was when Greg, Greg, Greg broke the seat board over, over Paiute that one day. Yeah, I was up at 11 behind Paiute, and Greg was coming right over Paiute, and we started out about, like, 9 or 10 or so. And, we're, and I was in weak, kind of choppy climb, not really doing good. And we were on radio, and we were supposed to be team flying. And I look over and I see Greg like doing the F-16 mock to, you know, like this, just climbing at a 30 degree angle. And uh, I call him on the radio and go, hey, you're, you're supposed to tell me when you're in lift, you know, and I'm, I'm flying that way. And Greg's like, fuck, fuck it, fuck, fuck, like that. And, and I get in the thermal and, you know, we climb out and we finish the course. And I started talking to him later in the day about what had happened. And. I'm working choppy lift at about 11 grand, you know, a couple thousand feet above Paiute. And as he comes in on Paiute, the glider just went, whoo, just went underneath him. There's no warning at all. He said he looked down he saw dirty bits and clean bits. And as he's falling past the glider, he's wham, the thing came back straight. And he's like, wow, okay. And then one, two seconds later, boom, does the same thing again, goes underneath them again, wham, goes, falls past, slack line, falls past it. And the second time he fell past it, it broke the seaboard. And then he had this really cool variant, like some brand new prototype Flymaster thing. 
So it immediately fell back underneath the thing like that. The glider rocks back and he recorded something like well over 2,000, 2,200 foot per minute lift. And, you know, and then he's climbing out and I'm calling him on the radio, chastising him for not telling me where the thermal is. <laughs> God, yeah. And then uh, since you were one of the early adopters of paragliding, or made the transition, or at least flew both hang gliders and paragliders. Uh, there was a dynamic, especially in California, about uh, paragliders showing up at the hang glider sites. Uh, and uh, I would say we had few supporters in the hang community. You were one of them. Uh, and I remember Smitty, uh, Greg Smith, uh, sending you to various places to sort of break the ice, if you will, uh, between the uh, hang gliding community and the paragliding community by flying your paraglider um, at the hang sites that it was, uh, it was forbidden, but um, the hang community wasn't gonna ask you not to. Yeah, Funston was really bad. And there were a few years where the, the hangies tolerated paragliders at the fort. And then, um, then Kelly died and that was it. That was all the ammunition they need. Kelly was one of the, the guys that was training there and was working with Greenbaum at the shop. And, and he fell over and hit his head on a rock at the, in front of the stables, which is right next just to the left of the fort. And, uh, that was it. That was all the ammunition they need, and they banned paragliders to the dumps. But yeah, there was there was a lot of contention and hatred. I was just talking about that about Rick Masters. Oh yeah, yeah. Because JC and I had gone with Rick Masters. He had he had taken us with axes up to Mazurka and thrown us off, and we had a cool you know bonding moment. It was a, that was a fun day. It wasn't a good flight. I don't think we got just barely getting level with launch, barely getting level with the Inyos. But uh, right when we got there, we just up there looking at the scene. It's this beautiful, huge meadow, little tiny cluster of towers right on the west side of the rim. And we're standing there, just, just kind of got out of the truck and just unloading the gliders. And an F4 came from the west below the ridge, just popped up over the ridge, descended down over the meadow like that put the thing in a bank like that and then descended into a canyon and disappeared off the east side of the Inyos. That, that's always, I don't know, that just blows me away. You know, anytime you see fighter aircraft like that and out in the Owens, it's cabined a couple times at Horseshoe. You get F, F-16s come through the canyon and go out across the valley and stuff. I love seeing that stuff. So that was my introduction to Rick Masters and he was all cool. And he had done uh, the film on the 1980 Owens Valley classic, the AOLA comic clones and pod people. It's, you can find it on YouTube now, but it just shows the classic during when it was a world-class meet and Gunter was just carpeted in gliders, most of them comets and a dust of would roll through and it would just take a comet out of the pile and throw it up in the air and spin it around, and throw it back down in the pile. And another one over here a little bit as it rolled up the hill, another comet would like pick up out of the pile and spin around, and crash back into the pile of gliders. That's all in that movie, in his original movie. But what happened in uh, 
1991, when we introduced paragliders into the U.S. market, people started crashing. And Rick Masters was there and saw some of it happen and saw some of his friends get hurt and just went on a warpath. He was hated on paragliders, said they were dangerous and that they, without a rigid structure, you should never fly them at all. And he just went on the hate path against paragliding and is still there. His, his website is still up today. So yeah, I, you know, I couldn't deny they're dangerous. I, mean, I, I piled in early 92. Yeah, early 92, Greg had left UP and had gone back to work with Adele because when UP had moved off to Utah, they were trying to pigeonhole him off into only doing R&D and whatever, and then kind of taking him out of sales and running the whole show. So he, just, he went and talked to Mr. Sue, and Mr. Sue hooked him back up with the U.S. distribution rights for Adele and got me a glider and got me a thousand bucks a month from Adele USA because I'd won the nationals on the UP Katana and was interested in, I owed my loyalty to Greg. So I told Greg, if, you know, if you're not happy with UP and you're gonna go with Adele, I'll go with you. And he got me a thousand bucks a month for a year and a half, just for flying Adele gliders. I had an infant kid. I really wasn't marketing, I wasn't touring, I wasn't selling anything. I was sewing repairs, flying meats, and just being an Adele guy. And that was amazing. Nobody had ever given me money to fly. You know, I'd worked at Willswing for 10 years at the time and they would give me nothing. Never had a glider. It was always a shop glider. You know, I got paid for my work, but they never paid me to fly. I had to pay my own expenses to comps. And that's how Willswing is. They don't, they don't pay comp pilots. They don't give away gliders to comp pilots. It's their, their business plan. Always has been, always will. And so I, you know, I owed a, a huge debt of loyalty to Greg and stuck with him through the Adele years. Um, that worked really well for him. He turned Adele into the biggest brand in the U.S. He was selling yeah. more than 300, 300, 500 gliders a year in the U.S. Yeah, we were all on the team. Yeah. And Chris, Dave Bridges, Robbie, Robbie, Bridges, all those yeah. guys got their start with Greg. So I went up there when Greg was going insane. I went up there and worked with Dave Frank in 98. Met Mr. Sue. Mr. Sue handed me an energy. We all went flying. Mr. Sue flew off Baldy. Had a crappy flight. Landed up half kind of in the trees, down the ski run. Didn't even make the landing zone. So we got this huge panic to go find Mr. Sue. Oh my God, you know. Yeah, he was in those amazing times. It wasn't long after that. I just I look, took a look hard look at what I was doing, and I wasn't I wasn't marketing. I didn't feel like I was providing value to Adele, so I voluntarily terminated my contract with them. After a year and a half, I just said, "Look, you know, I really appreciate the money, but I don't feel like I'm earning it." You know, and, uh, so I just stopped and stopped taking their money and uh, just went back to making glider bags and custom gear out of my garage now so and then what got you into being meat director 
Uh, that was all part of that whole time too. When we went up to Flight Greenhorn, was it Ed Stein who who ran that meet? That first meet off of Greenhorn in '91. But there was the, the core group of guys there: me, Greg, Chuck, you know, the Smith brothers. Um, yeah, there was Bouchard, Bouchard, Ken Byer. Um, there was a Fred handful. Lally. It's another one. There was a core group of guys yep. that sat down at the end of that meet and said, here's what we want. I mean, we want something like the PwC. Xavier Murillo had done a good start on the PwC at the time. And the, the nationals that Greg had won the year before, like in 1990, was a duration spotlighting contest. You know, it's like a barbecue weekend barbecue thing they weren't thousand point competitions they weren't oriented towards time and distance and any of that and Xavier Murillo had adopted the thousand point you know soaring racing system into the PwC scoring system so we just sat down at, at the end of the Sun Valley meet and said look if we want this to happen it's going to be somebody here right so there's that unpleasant silence and I put my hand up and uh, volunteered to run that meet. So I went home and drew up this cool cartoon. It was a, um, what the hell was it? I can't remember the first year. I think it was some skull and crossbones thing, you know, with bat wings and everything on a, a cover page or on the header. And then just the meat announcement, 50 bucks, t-shirt, a dinner, film and processing. And uh, filled it up. I limited it to 30, but we did 35 the first year. And then the next year, I limited it 35. We got 40. And, and uh, used Xavier Murillo's system. Jennifer Toms put that system into an Excel spreadsheet. And off we went. I ran the meet. And the first year, Guzinski had been flying this Excalibur and oh, yeah, I remember that. I was had, uh, had gone across the lake and then was on his way back when it was blowing down really hard and came in in the lee of some trees and snapped his ankle. So I got him to run the meet the first year in 91. And so I got to fly. I think I was flying the Katana at the time. Yeah, I was flying the Katana. And of course, everybody's watching me. So I'm off first and I climb out and I go north and get the perfect cloud over the middle of the north end of the lake. I left the lake at the right time. I got high, you know, north of the lake, connected with the cloud in the middle of the north end of the lake there, which usually there's nothing. You usually have to get all the way across the lake to the hills on the east, northeast corner of the lake. And it was an epic spring day. Base base at Elsinore was about 6,500. But by the time I got out to Paris Airport, um, over the drop zone, base was up around eight. So it was way over the top of the, the March Arsa is 6,500. The top of the March Arsa is 6,500. And I sailed over the top of it. I was doing beelines and come out of the clouds at eight grand, sailing over the top of the Paris DZ and uh, the March Arsa. Um, Little did I know, it, it blewed out behind me and everybody's following me. So that cloud that I got that connected me, you know, to 
the cloud street that went all the way to Saboba dissipated. So everybody was 45 minutes at least behind me, got stuck in that blue hole. And when I got to the landing zone after you know, getting retrieved from goal, there were two air traffic control officers there waiting for me because I was meat organizer of record and I'd gone to March and Elsinore and all the DZs and told them where we were and where we were going and everything. So they were waiting for me with a story that <laughs> there was enough time for the Air Force Colonel to get in his 170 and take off and orbit a cluster of gliders that was from 100 feet ground level right lined up with the March runway. From 100 feet up to 5,000 feet, there was a gaggle lined up with the runway. The guy's following me. And I told him, you know, we stood on launch. And it said, here, there's March Air Force Base. Here's where the ARSA is, you know. Know your airspace things. And they just flew right into the ARSA. In a big column from ground level all the way to 5,000 feet, lined up with a runway with enough time for this Air Force colonel to look at him with binoculars, walk down the taxiway, get in his 170, go airport, go fly circles around the, the junk infesting his approach pattern, and then fly back and get my information and send a couple of lieutenants to the Wilson or LZ that afternoon. So, yeah, that was, I had to, you know can't trust the little weasels so I had to run all the turn points south of them you know, I ran this, all the turn points out of down near Bundy Canyon so they couldn't get into the March Arsa <laughs> yeah the same year a couple days later I was flying in the meet again and I was in a gaggle with a couple other guys and Lee Kaiser remember I was with Lee yeah and we're over Bundy Canyon east of the freeway and I look over and here comes a KC-10. It's looking straight at it like this. It's climbing. It's way underneath us and way far away. But it's like this. It's pointed straight at me. It's like every circle, it's like still pointed straight at me. You come around again. And like Lee peels off, right? I'll do one more circle. And then I peel off. And it just thing goes right by me like this. And right, we were in, we were in the Lee gaggle. And he goes right through the next gaggle. The next gaggle was just down Bundy Canyon Road a little ways, you know. He just pointed right at me, went right by me about 100 feet away, and then just went right through the middle of the gaggle like that, just showing us who's boss, I think. That was, <laughs> yeah. Never had any more incidents until much later when Prentice flew right over the, the Elsinore DZ when there was a jump plane in the air. The jump plane was full of SAS guys. They send SAS guys out here to do jump training in the winter and stuff, so... Prentice was high over the South Towers and didn't want to detour around the water. Like, we're, we're okay if we go over the south end of the water, but Carl doesn't want us anywhere over the dirt, the south end of the lake. So Prentice, was, you know, thought he was winning, and he decided to go straight from the towers across the lake right over the runway because he saw the otter on the ground, right? Well, there's two otters. It's like one of them's a 12-5 full of SAS guys. They came looking for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah there were those issues and that's what compelled the united states hang association to establish the meat steward rule it's because i would play a little fast and loose with the rules and didn't disqualify the day because i couldn't identify the guys that were in the approach pattern and i didn't want to spank prentice for you know for flying through the meat so i was i let stuff like that slide and 
Kaiser and a few of the other guys thought, no, that's no good. You can't do that. So they established the meat steward thing and started refining and, and making the rules a little more hard and fast and consistent. Cause that was, that was the early years. You know, I, I have no regrets about playing fast and loose and making those meets happen because no one else was doing it. You know, not until way later, not until 95 with Gluzinski and Bill Gordon when they ran the nationals at Chelan. That was when paragliding competition in the United States really came up on the plateau that it's on now. You know, they ran a good meet. You know, they had EMTs, you know, Zizek was there as a meat steward. Um, Robbie was there. Yeah, you were meat director and that put Chelan on the map. That was the first Chelan competition. And it put America on the map too as a as a a place where there's a venue that's at least as good as Europe. I mean, it's arguably Chelan is... Yeah, Richard Golan was there. That's what those stories, we we were telling those stories the other day. Bridges going around the outside of some thermal, already ridiculous high climb lake, and watches Robbie fly into the dirt in a prototype Proton. And, or no, he was, that was a prototype Adele glider. Yeah, it had to be before. like a sector because um, the energy, I think, was 95. The sector was 96. So it yeah, had to so be a proto sector. Either a proto sector or an energy. I think it was an energy. No, it was an energy because I was flying a rainbow and Jennifer Toms was flying a rainbow. Right. And I didn't get my energy that was until 94. Yeah, the energy was earlier. I mean, the uh, rainbow was earlier. Yeah. So that was rainbow years, I think. And. Yeah, Robbie, Robbie, like uh, Richard Gallant and Sebastian Borquin, just blew me away. They were on a whole different level for me and for most people in the U.S. Like, 92, Sebastian came in fun flying, practicing on one of the last couple of days of the Nationals when we had a... Uh, we went up past White Mountain Ranch and then came back and landed at White Mountain Ranch. It was like Gunter to Line Street, somewhere north like Benton, and then back to White Mountain Ranch. And me and the Smith brothers and a couple other guys were all we were all thinking we're badass, making gold. And, and uh, here comes a bunch of the skydiving guys, you know. We were laughing at them. They, they'd top out. They'd come right 90 degrees to, to goal on the ridge top out at 15,000 and then fly out over the valley. And the guy's like five grand over the ground over goal. And we're just laughing at him, you know. We had left from three miles, you know, we've got a long diagonal and, you know, we're getting to goal at under a thousand. And um, so we're, we're just laughing at all these guys. And then here comes Sebastian just coming out to land with us at goal. He didn't run the, the course or anything, but he does a, you know, deep spiral to a tip drag to a stand up landing. And I was just blown away. I was like that. I had never seen anything like that. And he, I just, I was blown away. These guys were so good. I'd heard that Urs, Ari, or one of the other really hot ship pilots that was there from Europe had just landed on the Talus below White Mountain Peak because he kind of got in a weak cycle and he didn't want to fly out into the valley. So he just lands on the talus below White Mountain, hangs out for half an hour or so until he gets another good cycle and pops back off and 
gets back up, and flies the rest of the task or whatever, you know, flew back to, to line street, you know, the, to the car park and everything. I saw what these guys were doing and it, it just blew me away. We thought we were good pilots and we were just, we looked like amateurs. So, yeah, it was, that was wild. First interface with them in 92. So, I mean, they, they blew me away and I, I permanently changed Sebastian's life for sure. Richard Guan, Sebastian will never, never, never forgot that because we had really good pot and a couple of bad weather days. We went out to the buttermilks and did some bouldering and stuff and smoking, you know, solid pot, really good California, Centimea. They're, they're, the Europeans mix it with tobacco. So they, they had never smoked pot like that before. And they were all having, they were all having religious experiences out at the buttermilks. <laughs> and then I'm jumping around here a bit, but Bridges told me that you uh, uh, you looped for his high school graduation, or was it the college graduation? Whatever yeah, college college yeah. graduation. Yeah. So you had done loops over the, you know, over the ceremony for his college graduation, and then when him and Othar Lawrence were running those sort of Red Bull Nationals in Aspen in sort of the mid to late 90s. Uh, then they invited you out to do aerobatics at goal uh, at the end of the day to entertain the crowd. And there was one particular uh, session that I was at where you basically gave us all a haircut at about 80. People uh, dropped their burgers. Right. <laughs> The camera guy dropped his camera. We all hit the deck. I know my, you know, I know what it was like for me to watch, you know, that last low loop where you buzzed the crowd. From your perspective, because you've always had uh, a different eye for what is possible uh, in terms of aerobatics, describe that for me from from what it was like for you to set that up now because it was he had so much energy he just he, he just uh gives us all the haircut behind the snow fence because they had the the little orange snow fence you know to keep the crowd back and so he comes right at the fence when he bottoms this loop out at about you know 10 feet off the ground and he's doing 80 miles an hour and he just like rockets at us yeah. uh and um climbing you know like mad, but from our perspective, he was just gonna decapitate us all. God, the uh, sound must have been awesome. Yeah, and, and then he just comes from, so we all just instinctively like hit the deck, even the guy with the big shoulder mounted camera. Everybody hits the deck, and then he just comes like, you know, it sounded like an F-16 coming right over your head. He comes over over our head, freaking does his, does his bass leg, and just lands in the field, you know? Cause he climbed out like, you know, 50 feet. You know with all the energy and it was like oh, just like no and so we were all we were all going that was the most awesome thing i've ever seen uh and then both arm bridges were like well probably shouldn't have them do that again. <laughs> <laughs> not too much margin left there to play with no no it's like uh you know I would say the town isn't quite ready, you know, because it's not just competitors out there. It's a, the town isn't quite ready for that. The 2000, the Velenu, that was, I think, the last aerobatic meet you've gone to, isn't it? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, Telluride ended in 03 or 99. That was the last aerobatic meet. And R.C. Dave and I would, had started training judges here and I'd done practice runs here. And then we had the Crestline Massacre and uh, um, Soderquist blew up a side wire on his light speed. He was flying with race, skinny race wires and he knew one was damaged. And then there was that guy, I can't remember his name now, but the guy came down from Santa Barbara and RC Dave and I had vetted him. We talked to John Granold and some of the guys that had known him for a while. This guy had been flying sensors for 20 years and had just bought a, a T2. And I didn't know him. Dave didn't know him. So we, we talked to you know, guys we knew. We talked to Granold. And Granold said, yeah, he's been doing crappy wingovers for 20 years. He should be okay. So we had me and Heine and Chris Bolfin, you know, all of, all of the, the top competitors around Southern California were in reverse scoring order up on Crestline. And we were sending guys off. We had eight guys, I think, with smoke. So we were running it like a competition, but it was a judges training thing. And it was just fun. So when the guy in the window pops a smoke, the next guy is off launch. Right. And first couple of guys were like Dusty's flying a Falcon, you know, and, and then uh, the more advanced pilots started, you know, coming up in the queue. And this guy, because he had a brand new Talon, was about like number five. And then Dino was behind him. And Eric Clockboy was behind him. And then it was Chris and John and me. And uh, I couldn't see what happened. It was hazy enough to where I couldn't see what happened. But my girlfriend, Doriandra, was in the landing zone. And um, this guy from Santa Barbara goes up and does a couple, three crappy wingovers. Uh, he got about 130 degrees over the top. But he just sat there with the bar out. So the guy would go to 130 degrees and then not pitch around. And it, it would just kind of side slip. We did a couple of these really horrible 130 degree maneuvers that ended up in nearly 90 degree side slip like that until one of them stayed 90 degrees like that. It went from 130 degree bank to 90 degrees knife edge like that for about five seconds. And then it tucked on and just clapped the wings together like that. And I'm not sure exactly what happened if he fell into the bar and hit a wire or bar and that's what caused the failure but he ended up sandwiched between the wings and then the thing kind of tumbled like that and went like this with him on the outside and um all i saw is his right arm out and him at the end of the clap together wings like that doing the maple seed spin all the way into the ground with no attempt to get a reserve and uh um the, the next pilot was Soderquist. Soderquist has the damaged wire. He does a couple of loops, a spin, and then exits a spin from the stall with a really big dive, and the thing broke, barely nose up. It had almost no load on it. It's like 10 degrees nose up, and the side wire fails on one side. Claps the wings together like that. It does some sort of weird little permutation like this and rips the keel out of the glider. Now he's skydiving with the control bar and throws his reserve and does a near free fall deployment. They both died? 
No, Sarquist survived. The other guy died mm. at the scene. But then I went, yeah, then I went to Villeneuve. I guess the two events are somewhat unrelated. But I took uh, 154 Talon with the shorter wires to Villeneuve and did the the twister thing that they all freaked out about. They loved seeing that. The, the announcer in the Guillermo Bros video thing is like, oh, la, 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 twister. You know, they're just freaking out, you know, typical, probably drunk announcer, but um, nobody ever seen anything like that. And I, I was getting that glider to roll 180 just effortlessly. And I love those things. I mean, they're doing a buck 20 straight down and I can push the nose up and climb 150, 200 feet and, and still have airspeed and control and nail roll and the thing would roll. Just, yeah, just do these amazing rollovers. I get 180 rollover right in front of them. The thing just snaps around and it looks really cool. So they, they love that. And I'd never competed over water before. So on Saturday, I experimented with setting up over the water and landing on the raft, landed on the raft Saturday and then crash Sunday. But I'd done several other flights with the camera. Somewhere I got 35 millimeter film uh, pointed straight up like this over the Lake Geneva, looking to the east on that glider. And uh, yeah, I'd done, I'd landed this, like there's the, the raft and the little harbor. And then there was this pile of riprap with uh, about a hundred yards by 60 feet wide of flat ground right next to it with the marsh and the lake and the eucalyptus trees. And I stuck the thing in there a couple of times, mounted my camera, looped as low as I could, squeaked over the mass of the marina and then stuffed the thing into that little field right there. And, and uh, did that like Thursday and Friday. And then Saturday, I land, missed the raft and did that one loop where I started doing loops, you know, over the raft and came down and kind of finished up about three or 400 feet up and then moved where I pointed straight at the crowd and I did one more and I was still really high. So I did one more and I was still really high. So I did one more. And on the, on the second one, I pulled up about six feet off the water like that and still had enough energy to do a 180 and overshoot the raft by like a hundred feet. And, and that was Saturday. And then Sunday, I thought, well, I'm going to line up a little farther away and I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep doing the maneuvers. So the last maneuver is like at Aspen. You know, I, I complete the one maneuver and I decide, okay, this one is the last one. And when I come over the top, as soon as I pick up the ground, as soon as the glider gets about 20 or 30 degrees nose down like that, inverted, I can pick up the ground and start judging and extending that dive. And I extended the dive kind of thinking that maybe I put my hand down and drag my hand in the water at a buck 20. And I was, I remember starting to pitch up. I remember looking up at the trees like that and the reserve container hit the water as I was pulling G's like that. You can, I looked at the video really close so you can see it. The reserve, my chest hits the water first and then the base tube. And then, you know, as soon as the reserve container hits the water, it's just, <laughs> everything came to a stop just instantly and uh yeah and i just i remember vaguely remember floating up in front of the leading edge going oh fuck what this happened you know and then they fucking and then the boat's right there and then the, the worst injury that i got at the whole event was when they dragged me up over the rail of the boat it's like it's one inch aluminum gunnel on the boat and just got my side got all fucking gouged up from the dragging me over the edge of the boat
it was it rung my bell pretty good but i had i had broken up with a girlfriend i'd been seeing stephanie for four years and that had just kind of all exploded and and uh, cirrus had come over so i'd been wearing dark glasses and on the way out i took them off and put them in the harness so there was a bunch of like fucked in the head and perception things that i had done to sabotage myself you know that's what it was it was i literally had had thought that i'll drag my hand in the water at 100 miles an hour <laughs> and missed it by that much forsen's called it my maxwell smart move <laughs> so mitch let me ask you a couple just rapid fire questions you don't have to answer them fast take your time but just a few things you've heard the show a bunch you know these are coming but if you look back at your incredibly long career what would you change if you could god that's a tough one i don't know everything or nothing it's hard to say <laughs> the career is such a big picture you know the career doesn't isn't just me the career was my wife, my child, you know, all the people around me. I mean, there's a few things that I would change, but it would be bigger picture stuff that's actually not like career things. I would have bought a house cash a lot sooner, unchained myself from a mortgage a lot sooner and had more time. Because one of the things that I really like about being up here is that I have time to help other people and not expect anything in return. You know, I'll, I would love to do, I wish they were dirtbag pilots like I was back then, but there aren't now. It seems like a more affluent community. And, you know, what I, what I really love about the sport and what I love being a part of now is my Andy Hediger story at the peak of my powers. And they sent me, Adele sent me to Verbier, the pre-wills in 93. And I wasn't ranked, but you know, I had won the U.S. Nationals, and I was the only one that wanted to go. Me and Jan were the only ones that wanted to and could go. And uh, I'm not ranked, so I'm way back in the line, and it's huge me. It's like 170, almost 200 people, and it's windy, and it's late on launch. So I'm behind some guy who screws up his launch and goes careening off to the side and slams into me hooked into my racer in a rosette and I grab him and stabilize him and he gets his glider sorted out and then proceeds to get plucked from the top launch at Verbier. It's, you know what that's like. It's steep. It's fucking windy. It's just, he's just, he just gets ripped off the ground with the leading edge of my racer hooked over his Vario. So I'm, I'm kind of belaying him out like this until he gets near the end of the lines. Every time I kind of tighten up and tug on the lines, I hear tearing sound. Until there's like no more lines left, and I just belay him around the glider, destroy and just blow the leading edge off of my glider, and down in the mouth, get on the chairlift and ride down in the parking lot. And uh, Andy Hediger's got a little motorhome there and a tabletop sewing machine, and somebody directed me, just pointed over there, and I walked from the bottom of the lift to Andy's little motorhome. And he's like, yeah, I can fix that. And I go get him a six pack of Lombrow and 30 bucks. And I got to fly the rest of the meat. You know, cool. So he didn't have to do that. I'm an Adele pilot. He's paratech. You know, he had absolutely zero reason to help me. Hmm. So I like doing that. You know, when people come up here and the snowbirds fuck up their wings. I give top priority to stuff that I can turn around in one day. 
uh, drop everything, you know, I got a pile of basket cases out there that I've got 10, 30 hours on, you know, I'm not done with, but somebody comes up here with something that I can fix in a few hours or in a day. I love doing that. Buy me a sandwich, you know, I'll trade you straight across for a good meal from down the hill. You know, I haven't run across somebody too broke yet, but I would love to, you know, and help people if there were dirt bags in the sport like I was, you know, I'd help those people in a minute because I know, you know, from desperation comes the most sincere desire most oftentimes. And that's where I was. You know, I had nothing, I had two DUIs, and I just folded myself into my van in the parking lot at Will's Wing and just gave Will's Wing and my flying everything I had because there was nothing else. Literally nothing else. You know, that was, those were some tough years. But, you know, I don't, would I change any of that? I would probably not be trying to steal used tires drunk, which is how I think the cops found me and got my second DUI. <laughs> Followed me from the used tire store, something like that, you know. Yeah, I would go back and change things like that, but sure. seven years living in the parking lot at Will's Wing working there every day, I don't know if I would change that or not. I mean, that was some desperate dirtbag times, but I was living in my van when I won the aerobatic competition in Telluride in 1985. Um, you know, I had a somewhat a strange relationship with my parents in 1984, but my dad gave me a bunch of money to put... Uh, the logo of the Unifly boat company that he was repping on the bottom of my glider. And I took that to Telluride in 1984 and got like second or third place. Um, you know, and, and I didn't actually move into an apartment until 1987. Would I change anything like that? No, no especially not now. And the, the people that I know, the people that I admire that have come back around to to be my good friends now, Larry Tudor, um, for one, we all lived in our cars for some period of time. We all poured our lives that deep into the, in, into the sport where it became all consuming to the expense of almost everything else, including family and relationships and everything like that. And I don't think there's any other way to do it and do really exceptional things. Now, maybe there is, you know, I, there might be people, I, I'm, I'm sure there are people like, like more Krieger Moore and, you know, these guys that are somehow capable of doing everything right and surviving long-term and they've, they've put in the work too. I, mean, I understand he teaches and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, my hat's off to those people. I'm not one of them. I, I fucked up, I crashed, I survived, and I kept coming back. And that's me. I'm still like that. I still fuck up. I forgot to hook up my speed system last week, you know? <laughs> if you could only have one more flight, where would it be? Somewhere green. I had so many amazing flights. I just If I were to pick one out to repeat, I can't. There's no, there's no way. Um, one of the most amazing flights I had was at Zillertal when I was in Europe with UP. I hawked off Zillertal on an Axis 
and did 96K and made that gap and then got, it was a Northwest day. So it was just like effortlessly bouncing down the North face of that ridge all the way to some little town and there was a little lake and a, a little grass strip with a couple of sailplanes parked next to the grass strip and this little two, three-story building. So I landed there and walked in and it was a school building. It's like a grade school building. And I walked in just as school was getting out. So it was this wild scene, like something out of a movie where the kids just, ah, the screaming kids come down the steps. Ah, boom, they're out, out the fucking door past me like that, you know? And then there's like one or two little kids standing there and I'm a retarded gringo that doesn't speak much, you know, French or German. And I, this one little kid's kind of standing around wondering what the hell I'm doing. So I go, Hey, can you help me? I need to make a phone call to call my retrieve driver. And the kid's like, yeah, no problem. He goes over to the phone and what's the number. And I give him the number of the retrieve driver and he dials it up and hands me the phone and I tell the retrieve driver where I am and, and get the ride coming and hang the phone up and thank the kid for helping me out. And I complimented him on his English. He puffs himself up. Goes, yes, English is the language of the world. You know, it's from this little grade school kid. You know, little things like that. I would repeat that. Mm. You know, or any number of things. I don't know. I, the crappy flight that I had at uh, Saint Hilaire. I land on that bench and then drove down with the guy that was one of the Heidi Bloomhuber's little workers doing UP hang gliding business back then in Europe and just practicing French on them, you know, using the words like the sky and the sun and the clouds and the things that we, you know, that we deal with every day and flying. I mean, those are the amazing moments talking to people like that, you know, trying to break the language barrier in five minutes and just, yeah, the combination of the people and being high and up and in the rare air with, with a few guys like you, I, I don't care. You know, yesterday would be fine. I'd repeat yesterday is my last flight. You know, I'd repeat a, a sled ride on a smooth day where I can close my eyes and, you know, or God, one of the days I was test flying at, at Elsinore when I was running the, the wheels wing thing or a couple of days where I'd take three or four gliders out there. Wheelswing has a policy of test flying every production glider. So I was required to at least kite every paraglider that I sold. And I would take four or five gliders out to the E and just do top landings, test fly them all, bag them back up, take them back to the shop and ship them out to dealers. And usually by the last test flight, it's booming, you know, and I can't get down. So a couple of times I'd, I'd just get up and, see how long I could close my eyes without freaking out. Like in a sport, you know, a B-cell glider, something that's not going to bite me. Uh, I, I trained myself how to do sats on an XL sport, like a big glider. It was really easy to do sats in, in a super, in like an XL. And there were a few times you know, I was just up and it was hard to get down. So I'd stop trying. And I remember I took my shoes, my shirt off one time. Just kind of enjoyed the flight there, get get a tan, point into point into the west, and close my eyes, take take my clothes off, and you know, sit there for a while, and put my clothes back on, you know, go in and land. <laughs> you know, I 
you know, let's put a whole like five or six of those together. And that would be a good last flight. Mm. Have you had anything recently, in by recent, say the last 10 years, something that's happened in flight or something that you've learned about flight that's just completely blowing your mind? My first flight off Ord with the Enzo 2 extra small, I had done extensive repair on it. You know, Zion had put the thing in the trees and it was really badly damaged. So I put a lot of time into it. It's one of the more extensive repairs that I'd done just because that glider is so difficult to work on. The cells are only like nine inches wide. So to work on the thing, I got to pull out a huge amount of the ribs and rods. So I spent a good part of a week, you know, on and off fixing that thing. And then I think I flew it once or twice here just to kind of got it sorted out. And then I went with Gavin Revis Ord. And the first time I flew it there, the stab on the right side broke. So I, it was, it was mellow enough to top land it once and I tried to do a fisherman's knot and relaunch it again from that gap where the hang glider's launched down below. We were launching off the peak above the, the hang glider gap, old launch. And I landed it once there and everything, the landing went right. We launched again and it broke again right away. And typically I'm launching really early, right when it's starting to crack off. I'm usually the first one off. And the second time I came into land, and it was just like, no, you're not going to land here. And I was just like slaloming at like 30 miles an hour going through that broken shale stuff. It's like, no, I'm not, not going to land this up here and fix it again. So I went out to the landing zone and uh, got there pretty high because it, it had cracked off. And I just get to the landing zone, just kind of relax. And there's a big thermal. So I climb in it and I look over and I'm level with the top of the gaggle over launch. So it's like, all right, fuck it. I just, there's a road that heads dead north. It goes to a liquor store. So I went there. And I'm still at eight, nine grand. And every time I push on the bar, the tip's just like, whack, 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 just making this big flopping sound. And the whole stab is just lines trailing in the breeze. And, and uh, so I get to the north end of, of the Hesperia area. And I'm stupid high. And I stop over this liquor store. Because Linda knew where that was. She had driven for us before. And, and I, I had climbed out there before. And so I climbed out there. And then I went to that big mine where the windmills are north of the, the Victorville Airport. And I got kind of low there. But I circled out and went back up like 10 grand there. And then I was looking at Slash X. I was thinking maybe I'll land at Slash X. And, and I got there and it was... Now it's like booming. I wasn't even thinking about going down anywhere near Slash X. So I just continued on to the north side of Barso and north end of Barso right there where the town is here. And then the Daggett Marine Base is there and the road goes off to Calico and there's 30 miles of nothing on the 15. So I augured down there. I'm just like, no, I ain't going farther than this. So I just spiraled down there and landed and it was dead. It was like swirling. There's nothing. There's no wind. There's a a 10 foot by 50 foot American flag was like glued to the pole when I came in and land. It's 100 degrees, just hot, high density altitude. You know, I come in and land the Enzo, pack it up, go get an ice cream sandwich at the Arco station. The guy was really kind to me, let me use their phone. And I called the retrieve driver and got Linda on her way and sat down in the shade of this abandoned restaurant to eat my ice cream sandwich. It was 20 minutes later that that flag moved 
So I got there 20 minutes ahead of the westerlies in that glider without ever using the bar more than about a third. And then and with the westerlies came Phil Weffinger and a couple other guys. I'm sitting there and here they come. You know, and the flag just cycles up once and, you know, and then, then kind of stays lightly ruffling out of the west 20 minutes after I hit the ground in that glider. So that to me is astounding. You know, I'm, I'm at the top on that thing and 20 minutes ahead are the Westerlies at trim. It's just crazy. There, I, I want to fly one of these gliders against, I have some late eighties high performance hang gliders. So I'd like to, you know, get somebody like get you guys and go get, get one of my, my, uh, my old King posted hang gliders and go do some racing. That would be fun. I'll see what that would be like. I got, awesome like guy. I want to take the GSX too. I have the GSX here. I want to take that and glide that against a Mojo because I think a Mojo will smoke the GSX. And not only that, the Mojo will, will basically the worst possible malfunction. You can basically go to sleep and the thing will reopen and turn less than ninety degrees. So that that to me is really astounding. You know, when you can have two gliders that look pretty close to the same. I mean, the the GSX is big, wide open holes kind of low aspect chunky looking thing next to a mojo where the mojo will save your ass where the gsx is, just wants to kill you so i remember first flying with you because we had all known of you but i don't think i really got to fly with you until i started hanging out with you a bit at elsinore back in the day and you had this t-shirt this black t-shirt uh, I remember, and it it just was a black T-shirt with these white letters, and it said, "If you die, we split your gear," and you'd just be setting up your shit on launch uh, while wearing that shirt. And I was like, "Whoa, that's really just saying what no one wants to admit." <laughs> <laughs> and because there was a mentality that went with that, because it was a totally true statement. But there was, you know, I felt with you, there was a, there was a seriousness to go and flying and an acknowledgement of what could happen whenever you do go flying. And, you know, that shirt was, was basically putting it out there in the open. If you're going to pull the shit out of the bag, it's on. And so on if you don't mind talking about your mental approach to flying. Well, you know, my mental approach is my attitude that's evolved from my history in the business. And, you know, I say business because I never really was in the sport. You know, I've always been in the business. I went right from, my first year on the Raven to working at Willswing for seven years. And I went through a burnout phase and got to experience um, witnessing death firsthand at uh, 1985 um, at Chelan on the way up to Grouse. And I was riding with Kells and we went off to the Chelan airport on after a flying day or on a, on a non-flying day and started playing around with the Duncan brothers had come out with the, the first prototype airborne trikes 
and they were nice, big, heavy, powerful trikes, and, and we all tried aero towing. I tried aero towing. We had no idea what we were doing. We had four loops of 505 leech line, 500 pound leech line in four loops as a weakling. And it was like me and Ken Brown and a handful of other guys. We're just going, that looks about right. You know, and off I go. And I was, I was like third or fourth. You know, Huey was there. There are a bunch of the top piles were there. So I got a tow. And then Chris Bulger got a tow. And Pendry was flying the trike. And they were out near the edge of, from the airport, between the edge and the river, there's like groves and then the edge and the river. And they were out over that edge and hit something late in the day. I mean, it was like way late in the day. And I just remember watching Pendry kind of lock out like this and then right just instantly it just went like that. And then he popped off and the trike went kabump, kabump like that. And I'm sitting there with a, me and Crazy Wayne were standing there about halfway through a 16 ounce can of Budweiser. And I watched this happen and I looked over at Wayne and there we just boom, gone from the landing zone. And the, I mean, the trike hadn't even hit the ground yet. And we were standing there with our thumbs in our asses and a beer in our hand and everybody's gone, going after the wreck. So I just thought, I'll stay here. And, and what had happened is as soon as the trike tumbled, Chris got spit out about 1500 AGL and felt it was death. So that's, that's one of those little things that goes in the bank, you know, and then <clears throat> paragliding, paragliding starts with, you know, Matsu in the hospital for six months and that shit shows up in my desk, you know, in, in Elsinore. So right away, we know these things are dangerous. We know these things that put you in the hospital. And then the early years in paragliding was like the early years in hang gliding. They're killing 30, 40 people a year. And, you know, and the gliders were dangerous back then. And, you know, I crashed the racer at Flagstaff, broke my ankle and broke my back and, and uh, early 92. So, yeah, I, you know, I was lucky that I walked away. From, I didn't walk away. I'm lucky I was, was able to walk after that because people we know, Huey, better pilots than me, had it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a discussion I had just recently with with Linda and Dusty. Dusty Rhodes is a guy here where I, I was doing demo days in 2001 when I went to work and at Will's Wing to run the, their paragliding department, selling swing and airwave. And Dusty had demoed a sport. The airwave sport was a high B earlier in the day, but he wanted to fly the magic. And Rob McKenzie said something to him that kind of warned him about it. Because he's like, no, it'll be okay. I'll just fly it late. Well, 5.30 in an August day isn't exactly late. And he got a couple hundred over, took a big hit, went around twice and splatted, hurt himself really bad. And then, you know, Linda's hurt herself really bad, had some bad crashes and hang gliding. And I just thought about, you know, I think about it all the time that here we are on the margins of more than 9 million people and the 10th largest financial power in the world is right there. We're on the edge of it. And me, you, Linda, how many people out of that would take a hit like that and come back? 
It's like me, you, him, Linda. That's how many out of nine people. That that brings me to tears when I think about who we are and what we've done to get here. You know, and it's like I don't want to see my friends hurt. And if I have to wear a T-shirt that's sort of not politically correct, then yeah, then it's worth it. You know, if I if I have to appear to be a monster to some people and frighten them away, it's worth it because I'd rather them be afraid of me than have to pick them up off the ground and sell their gear, you know, and fix their their wreck and stuff. I just, you know, how do you address that? How do I look at myself as the guy that provides the gear to someone that gets hurt? You know, if I could go back in time and avoid that, I would, but you can't. There's no going back. So what do I do going forward? Just, I'd make no illusions that what we're doing, suspending ourselves under a puffy bag of mostly air under string is extremely dangerous. And you can make it safe, but you have to work hard to make it safe. There's a whole bunch of work and wisdom that has to go into being safe. And you're never going to be safe flying a paraglider in midday convection. I don't care what you say. You know, I, I watched a video of Ganesio coming into land at Chelan, you know, where his glider does the snake 30 feet off the ground, you know. And I've had that happen. I've watched friends here get hurt on mojos. And that, that the, the cardinal sin of letting the thing turn. I watched a guy here coming in, doing S-turns behind the candy cane there, and the thing takes a 50% collapse, which, you know, is on a mojo, you should be able to keep it straight, but he didn't. You know, it turned 90 and pitched down and broken femur. Just that aviation, like the sea, is incredibly unforgiving of those small mistakes. And yeah, how, you know, if I can wear a t shirt that impresses people of the reality of what we're doing, that's cheap. That's free. You know, it doesn't cost anyone anything. It's an amazing group of people. It's a rare group of people that do this. And it's really amazing to see what you guys have been doing. You know, as I never thought paragliding would go that far. You know, the FR that I had it was Buck Rogers science fiction world compared to the Gen Air and the Randonews 13 cell. It's just astounding. The, the R12, it's like, oh my God, if you had pulled an R12 out in 1991, what would have people thought? I've thought about that. It's just like, what would it have been like to pull one of these out of the bag? You well, know, the collective conscious back then would have been unable to deal with the handling to start with. Yeah, probably. But still, you know, as you're zooming around on these things now, you're just like, yeah, these things go pretty darn good. And they don't collapse and they're relatively predictable. But as a conversation that I had with Robbie after I bought the R10. I just thought, well, this is a fascinating circular paradigm shift we've just experienced here, where in 1992, they gave me the uh, the GSX, which was known unrecoverable from more than about 60-70% collapse. and put five Korean test pilots in the drink before they thought, let's give it to Mitch. He'll race it in the 92 Nationals. And... Uh, so I called Rob and I, I emailed back and forth with Rob a little bit after he got the R, uh, R10 too. I said, this is, this is a fascinating moment in history where 
We're now flying gliders that are known and recoverable from big events like the 92 GSX was known and recoverable from big collapse events. And his response was, I love my R12. I love it. It's just as long as I'm high, it's the greatest glider ever. <laughs> so it's like he's not disagreeing with me, you know. Um, and then, you know, your story too. We talked about how I got the R12, where at Valle in, what was it, 2014, there was like 14 reserve deployments. And that was it. That's too many. We got to have a CCC class. No more open class gliders. So next year, 2015 and 2016, with CCC gliders, there's 16 reserve deployments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the transition was like 2010, 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and to me, the gliders weren't the problem. You know, so you're not going to, regulate the problem away, you know, because risk homeostasis. And I think the famous example of that was, uh, it was, it was like Romanian taxi drivers. So there was a certain accident rate that they had. And, and so they gave them all anti-lock brakes. And for a short time, the accident rate went down. And then they just started to go faster. Sure. And so then the accident rate was the same Hell again. On. Yeah. So, um, so there's just a certain amount of risk that people are willing to accept. Uh, and so you can give them something safer, but if that's where the line that this particular group uh, wants to go to, they'll just start, you know, they'll start taking more risk. And so whatever safety you gave them uh, will be negated by additional risk taking. And so you're not going to, you know, you're not going to regulate it away as much as you might try. But at the same time, I'm really impressed with the advances in gliders uh, that have happened, even with the additional requirements. But at the same time, you know, for the last couple of days, we've been flying with Mitch on, you know, the R12 I gave him. And... I have not seen the top of that glider very much. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe once. I got completely taken to school yesterday is what I felt like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, like... <laughs> and, and so, you know, so, you know, that's the last of the open class gliders or the last of the V8s, a la Mad Max that I like to call it. Uh, it's still a magnificent glider and I haven't seen you take one hit. And I know that glider's solid, but that's a good glider. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what we're flying now isn't any better than that is. And that glider is, uh, it's like 2011, 2012. Yeah. And here it is, 2021. Yeah. Mitch, can I ask you a question about the, the going back to the t-shirt? That was totally the opposite answer I was expecting. And what what i mean is in in my eyes you guys were a different caliber of taking on risk you know the early generation like you guys did was just cowboy and you know we're always talking about safety and risk and fear and on the show and it's some sometimes i just feel like god are we just being totally 
you know, we need to take, we probably need to take on more because of what these guys showed us that they had to do. Is your, is your generation just more willing to take on that kind of risk or was, was, was fear just as a big a deal as it is for us now? I think it's an individual thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to answer that question really. I mean, I was 10 years late into hang gliding development, right? When I started, when I bought my Raven, that glider was stability and load testing, right? And before that, all the principals at Will's Wing had gone through those ugly years of gliders that would luff dive, you know, or had structural problems. I mean, they were, you know, the 30 to 50 deaths per year in the United States was a testament to how little people knew about hang gliding in the early years. Um, and I've had this conversation too, an interesting conversation with a few different people. The, the most analogous conversation, I think, to, to answer your question would be a conversation that I had with Tammy Burkhar. She was a female hang glider pilot that actually won an aerobatic contest at Telluride when I wasn't there. And one of the years that I was there, I think it was 99 that last year or somewhere in there, but I remember we were up on Gold Hill and late in the day for the evening run and it was light and or like starting to catabatic down the front so we decided to launch off the back into bear creek and uh she had uh, a pod harness with a side mount reserve and went running down the backside of where that the flag is on the kind of the lower part of the gold hill launch area and you got about like 75 feet of that super steep one-to-one -one, and then there's a road cut. So there's a notch, right? And in no wind and a hang glider, you come up on that really fast. So she runs off there and on the way down, the reserve catches on the, one of the rear wires. So she has to kind of let go with one hand at full run with a hang glider approaching that road cut and kind of mushes the glider over the road cut and then unhooks the wire from the reserve container and flies away and proceeds to like, shit herself for like four years like it really bothered her and and then another few years later when i was trying to find axon mark axon to to do an interview with you um i i talked to her because she'd been um she'd been going out or, or living with axon when axon's been in santa barbara before he went to go take care of his mom in albuquerque and when i contacted her to find mark she just goes, hey, Mitch, and tells me this story about that and how it really fucked with her head for a long time. And I thought about that for a few seconds, and I realized that that kind of shit happens to me all the time. I just deal with it. You know, like, I've, I've hucked off test production test flights with Will's Wing and had stuff like that happen. Like, the front pin comes out of my reserve, and I got to push the reserve back in and fly down with one hand on the reserve, or... And it's just all through my career, there's been a million different things where those little life and death things have happened and you just deal with it. Yeah, there, there may be like a core group of fringe lunatics who are willing to jump into that level of unknown and just deal with it. You know, and that's one of the things that I think is really different now about what's happening with paragliding is that there's this really there's a bigger separation between um 
getting the glider and going flying in hang gliding than there is in paragliding. You can just get the glider and go flying. And so you don't get like 20 years of lore and history in the, the extended training period and stuff. You're just like, you're in the air. You bought your gear. It's, it still smells new and you're flying. You can do a couple hours of ground handling. You're doing a sled ride off the hill late in the day. And so, you know, how can someone mentally prepare themselves for the really big chaos that happens in midday convective lift? There's, there's such a huge gap between the, the early years of any kind of flying and convective air and the reality of, of midday in August. The, or, the danger is so orders of magnitude different. You can train for it by flying all the time, but you can never train for the chaos when it happens. Like that flight with, with JC off of Mazurka with Rick Masters. I was flying the Axis. I'd been production test flying for several years. I come into land and I'm slowing down and trying to hit this little salt pan. It's about this big like that. And I'm just about to flare like that. And the glider goes up 10 or 15 feet and turns 90 degrees and just spits me out. And I'm going that way. And, and like with a paragliding, like that video of Ganesha landing at, at, at the Chelan Lakeside Park. It's like, you can't train for that. You can train for it by doing maneuvers and everything like that. But you can't train for a wad at, at 25, 30 feet AGL. It's like, no, you have to have confidence and the ability and the training to deal with that stuff and if you're not if you don't have that if, if then i think you're operating inside the delusional world where sooner or later the illusion of safety is going to be shattered either that or you'll go your whole career and be lucky you know um i've been unlucky i, I slammed in in 92 you know launching the racer off of miriam crater you know, um, I managed to do two meets in the Owens and never had an accident. You know, both of those meets in 91, 92 on Thursday, as I'm driving up 395, there's a helicopter pulling a body off a gun or launch both times. You know, and I'm not good at launching. And that was Patrick Segru took a front right off a of launch in 91. And I forget somebody else, you know, took a big wad right off launch in 92. And both years, there were really bad accidents there, but somehow I survived. You know, I did a, a 3,500-foot, nearly 3,000-foot plunge right next to Gunter in 92 on, on the GSX. It was at 11.5, just crossing over the middle of the canyon south of Gunter, way behind the Lee gaggle. And uh, the thing wadded. Just in, and I looked up just in time to see about five cells of a tip twists over my head and then the thing goes back and I fall and then it pitches forward and I was doing this back spinning fall with the risers twisted thing for 2,500 feet going right down the middle of the canyon the south of Gunner and I got untwisted and got the thing out level with launch and then flew out the canyon and you know crapped myself cleaned my shorts out Marcus Meyer the Smith brothers were landing on the spine right next to the south of Gunner to fetch to fetch uh, a badly injured Marcus Meyer, one of the top German pilots. You know, it's just like, uh, yeah, it's, I got exposed to so much death and injury and mayhem in the early years. There's no way I can escape it or remove it from my collective consciousness and paragliding. 
and I see what's going on here now with the recreational crew where the van load of 13 people goes up at three o'clock in the afternoon with mojos and they all survive year after year after year. It's, it's amazing, but it's a testament to, you know, Russ and, and the guys at, at Ozone and all the guys that are involved in designing gliders that they've designed something to fit that market that saves people's lives and that, the, the crew here, you know, Marcelo and Noak and all the guys that are training here have a good enough understanding of, of what low time pilots can do on a glider like the Mojo or on high A, low B, you know, A level gliders to where they're pulling that off. And that's, that wasn't my history. You know, the, the early gliders that I grew up with, like were, not safe to fly midday, not even close. And now it's, this is a whole different world. You can fly a glider like the Mojo in midday and be relatively low skilled and survive way better than 99% of the time. And that's enough to keep a small handful of instructors going here. And so, you know, given all that, why do you still do it? because it's flying. It's, I dreamed of flying when I was a kid. I had a recurring dream of running off of the, the Newport Bay cliff and waking up in, in midair at the edge. Every day I fly and every day I get a good climb. I'm ecstatic, I'm fucking giddy, I'm laughing. I'm like when I was circling around with you, no, it wasn't you, it was, uh, I was circling around with Thad and Gavin over the arrowhead. And that's just, to me, that's just spectacular when I'm with people like that and we're in lift and we struggle from below the terrain to way above the terrain. And you get that, that last 500 to a thousand feet where the lift tends to coalesce right before it hits the top of the inversion. You know, it's just like that last little kick in the pants. It's like, fuck yeah, you got it. You're in it. And, you know, we're topping out and, I just love that. I love getting up to the top of the inversion, looking over the top of the Oreo cookie. It's like, yeah, this is as high as it goes because I can see, I can see over the top into the clear air above the inversion. Just all those things are just, I think, what the human species should be living for because paying a mortgage and working in a, as an insurance broker is not what you're supposed to live for. And then I could come up with a whole list of things that everybody out there does that is not what you're supposed to live for. It's like they're living for the weekend so they can go ride their dirt bike or relax and watch TV all weekend or something. But it's like I'm jumping off a mountain and going two miles up in the air with nothing but the energy of the sun, a, a bag of nylon. And I'm not going to trade that for anything. Not ever. Sasumo is here. He's like 78. And he's still doing it. He's doing this air hug thing. It's like every time he comes out and flies, he's like one of the last ones to land. And stuff like that. And that's what I want to be doing on a Xeno in about 10 years. Something like that. Because what else am I going to do? Sit here, watch TV, play video games? That's not living. It's like, no. You have to get to a lot of hang gliding history before we could get, you know, to 
the philosophy of the man. And yeah, so, awesome. you know, because not everybody can put it like Mitch can put it. When it comes to, I would say, mental toughness and sort of the attitude to bring to flying, considering what's at stake, and there's a lot at stake, obviously, when you're in the when you're in the learning phase and there's a host of unknowns, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So to the outside, it can appear to be way more reckless or cavalier than it is just because hindsight's always 2020. And what I learned from Mitch in the early days is that, you know, every time that thing comes out of the bag, it can kill you. And if you're not approaching the sport just like that, um, you're not approaching the sport the right way. And being that the burn hand teaches best, you often have to learn that lesson the hard way. And, and Mitch had already learned it the hard way before, before I did. But I would say hanging out with him was sort of a, you know, it was, it was a wake-up call, sort of a re reality check. And I had already had a lot of experience as a climber. But flying was new. And it turns out, you know, at least back in the day with flying, it was even more important to come with the right attitude than the state climbing was in at the time, which was far more mature. And I totally agree that maybe that attitude is a bit lost now that the sport has matured and the gliders have improved quite a bit. But you know, the risk is still there uh, just because we're doing more than we ever have before, which means that, you know, as the gear became more capable, you know, we pushed the fucking boat out a little further. So the attitude and the approach has to be the same. And then we've all gotten, I would say, our tests of fire. I've only broken my neck once due to paragliding, but nothing else gives you peace. And so this, you know, it, you can, in life, you may never find peace. You may never find something that gives you peace. And when you find something that gives you peace, it's the whole point of living. And if there's risk associated with it, so be it, because it's too special to let go and you're not going to find peace again if you let it go. And then if, if that is what you lose, then what's the point of living? Mitch, that was special. Bill, thank you. Uh, what a treat, man. Thank yeah. you. Thank you both. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes cost so if you can support us financially all we've ever asked for is a buck a show and you can do that through a one-time donation through paypal or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out we put a new show out every two weeks so 
For example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime and hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support. And we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Thank you.